Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Rob Brooks. He's a professor of evolutionary biology at the University of New South Wales, a researcher and an author. Machines are integrating themselves more and more into our lives, from algorithms which know when you're depressed and want to eat ice cream, to sex robots who are available to satisfy your desires on demand. This concept, known as artificial intimacy, might seem as though it's from a science fiction novel, but it's rapidly becoming a reality in modern life. Expect to learn what artificial intimacy is and its potential impact on the future of relationships, whether it's actually legal to get married to a robot, how worried we should be about people retreating from the real world, the danger of supermarkets who can talk to your sex toys, whether artificial intimacy is better than no intimacy at all, and much more. This Monday, an absolutely huge episode with Sam Harris, neuroscientist and moral philosopher, is going live. It's one of the episodes I've looked forward to the most this year. Sam has been an absolutely massive influence on me over the last decade, and I can't wait to get this one out. So make sure that you've hit the subscribe button. It is the best way to support this show, and it ensures that you will not miss that episode when it goes live. A thank you. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gymproof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025 and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash modern. That's netsuite.com slash modern to get your own KPI checklist today. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've won Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data 
it's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rob Brooks. You must feel a little bit like a prophet because everybody is talking about artificial intimacy now. Are you a trendsetter in this regard, being ahead of the curve? Yeah, you know, I do feel a little bit vindicated um, in that, you know, this my book came out in 2021, so I was writing it in, you know, 2019, 2020, really. Um, and a lot of the things that I was just imagining, you know, this might happen and that might happen, have come, you know, come true. There's all sorts of other things that have come true as well that I never envisioned, of course. But, um, you know, I think people love to say uh, computers will never do this, AI will never do that. Um, and as soon as they do, they're almost immediately proved wrong in most cases. So we're, uh, you know, we're living through times where, in which uh, just about any kind of prognostication is going to be true at some level. How did you get interested in studying artificial intimacy? Good question. So I, um, I'm actually a biologist. I work on small, well, used to work on small um, animals and at the nasty things they do to each other associated with sex and mating and reproduction. It's a, a, bus- a sort of body of evolutionary theory called sexual conflict. And the idea there is that even a mummy and a daddy who love each other very much still, you know, don't necessarily have completely aligned interests. And in a lot of animals, they, you know, those interests are super um, unaligned. So they're actually trying to exploit each other through mating. And so for a very long time, I thought this is really important. People need to know about this because it gives you a really interesting lens through which to look at why in humans, sex and relationships and families can be so complicated, you know, sublime, beautiful, but, but complicated at the same time. Um, And so I was writing a book about that, and I I must say it took me a long time, five or six years. I was writing and writing, had screeds of stuff about all sorts of really heavy topics. And, you know, a lot of of the sort of, what do you, guilt, I guess, about, about, you know, who am I to speak about this? Um, Imposter syndrome, I suppose. You know, who am I to talk about this? This is all the heavy stuff. This is the basis for all the culture wars. You know, I think I've got a lot to say here, but I know I'm going to get slammed. And eventually I tried to sell the book to people and they were all like, this is just way too heavy, way too much. Um, But at the same time, I was running a program at my university, which tried to get people together to do um, sort of interdisciplinary stuff to meet big challenges. And, you know, refugees and climate change and all sorts of worthy topics. And I said, no, we're a very technical university. We're going to do something on technology do living with 21st century technology. And so I got to meet all the people at my university who were working on robotics and VR and um, AI. And we've got some amazing people in AI at uh, UNSW where I work. And I met them and I got really, you know, had some really amazing conversations, took people out to dinner after events that we'd had. Um, 
And, you know, it became very, very clear to me that they were, you know, had one eye on this. Um, and, you know, whilst they're concerned about the killer robots killing us all, you know, in our sleep or autonomous weapons, et cetera, um, they also were just concerned about how how badly uh, machines might mess us up. And I thought, there's sexual conflict theory right there. And that made a great vehicle for a book that was strangely a little bit more lighthearted and speculative um, and interesting. Draw the parallel between sexual conflict theory and AI for me. People may not see the yeah. immediate set of uh, parallels. Yeah. Okay. So um, when, you, um, when you're in a relationship with somebody, you may find um, that, you know, everything's going well and you're totally aligned um, and, and you're both getting the same sort of thing out of the relationship, but you might not. You know, as I said, even a mum and a dad who love each other very much also have, uh, you know, disputes over money or over whose chance it is to, you know, take out the garbage or whatever it is. Um, even, you know, in relationships, often before you get to the point of, you know, having kids, etc., but, you know, not necessarily, when those relationships break down, people can do also, they can mess with each other's heads. Uh, so you have people, you know, stalking, you have them, you know, involved in coercive control, etc. The dominant view of that kind of thing is that it's, you know, bad person A does something bad to innocent person B, and that can that can and does happen. But of course, very often there is a, a kind of a mutual messing with each other's heads. You know, mismatched attachment styles, mismatched interests, poor communication, etc. Now, you make a machine that can emulate part of what it is to be in a relationship that's going to have conversations with you, remember your name, remember what you're interested in, even a chatbot that might have sexy talk with you or whatever. Um, the potential is there, of course, for that machine to deliver all the good things, the things that you want, but the potential is also there for that machine to, uh, to mess with your head, um, either inadvertently by not being very well put together or by having learned from the internet because the internet, as we know, is a bit of a sewer. Um, and or, or it could be programmed. It could be, could be actually deliberately programmed by somebody to, you know, um, so an example would be a romance scam. If you think of the romance scams that people run, um, you know, they're very clunky. You have to be kind of vulnerable and perhaps perhaps not at your best um, and perhaps not that, you know, familiar with the internet, et cetera, to fall prey to, you know, um, Nigerian prince who wants to take you away and and as long as you send him, you know, um, $5,000 for the airfare. Um, but if you can imagine with machine learning, machine learning could learn from all of these scams to figure out not, not only to tailor the best approach and the best way of hooking you, but the best approach for this particular target. Um, and it can personalize it um, and therefore exploit people for money. Um, and so all of those are, are possible forms of sexual conflict that are very much have parallels in the things that people do to each other. Right. So we have certain vulnerabilities in our mating psychology and just in our attachment psychology generally, whether it be mm. intimacy with a partner, intimacy with friends, the way that we want to show up in the world, and machines either on purpose or through uh, um, maliciousness or neglect or ignorance or impreciseness all of these different ways are uh, opportunities for somebody new that we are interacting with, whether that be artificial or not, to trigger those. And that can cause suffering and it can make people feel bad. And it can also make them feel good. And then after they've felt good, it can make them do things that they might not necessarily want to do. 
Exactly. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, that is the doom and gloom part of it. That's the, um, the, you know, beware of the AI kind of view, of course. On the other side of it, the fact that, you know, machines are actually very, very good at engaging us and engaging those things that we all want to feel um, and helping us to feel heard and, and even loved, that, you know, has a, a, a thousand potential good outcomes as well. So I'm not completely down on the technology. There are people who would ban all of this technology. It's not even, I don't think it's even anywhere near to possible. Um, but there are people who, who want to shut that whole thing down. Um, but it, you know, that there, there is a tremendous amount of good there because there, on the other side, there's a massive epidemic of loneliness and disconnection and uh, folks who don't have the social skills necessarily, uh, you know, for, you know, one-on-one -on -one adulting, et cetera. Um, and there's a lot of good that can be delivered there. Um, so, so that's a good thing. Who's this Dave Cat guy? Dave Cat's an interesting cat. He's um, very famous. I think he was on. A, I think he had a show or was on a show in the US. Um, but he has been married to a sex doll for uh, you know over a decade. Um, Shidori is her name. Uh, she's had three bodies, uh, so there's a bit of wear and tear on these um, on these sex dolls. You know, I think. Um, <laughs> Dressing them and, and taking them places, etc. And and they have now got three other girlfriends who live in their sort of poly pod. Um, and, you know, they, they have social media presences all of their own. And Dave has said um, in some of his conversations that he doesn't he doesn't want to be let down by people and he doesn't want to be hurt by people. Um, and so he's very happy just having this, you know, this world, um, and I don't want to sound too dismissive of it because it's, there is a very human kind of pathos to it. Um, but you know, he's and, and he's very much aware, of course, that even though he um, works through the, um, you know, works through it as if it were real and as if these were people, he's also very much aware that they aren't, um, and that he's you know doing something unusual. But um, speaks, you know incredibly eloquently about how this is the right thing for him and this is uh something that just just suits what he needs and i think that there's um you know i hope that there's there'll be increasing recognition that folks are going to be um having all sorts of kinds of relationships with their tech because uh the tech will will be built i'm, I'm fairly sure of that if there's a way to make some money off, off it it will be built is it legal to be married to a robot no, I don't know that it's legally mar married in any sense. It's um, emulated a marriage. Figuratively, symbolically yeah. committed to. Okay. I also learned from you about the lioness vibrator and auto blow AI. Yes. So, um, you know, this is, this is almost, was almost sort of old news, I guess, when I um, was writing the book, but it was very interesting that you, you know, um, you've got sex toys, of course, that your, your partner can control. And that's a, a great thing if you're, if it's in, in the spirit of fun and, and you've, um, you know, go out or something like that, uh, with a toy inserted and, um, then they play on their app a little bit and, and, um, it's all very fun if it's done you know, with consent and respect, et cetera. Um, and this whole field is called teledildonics, which, you know, the tele part is transmission, and I guess the dildonics must be the, the, <laughs> the making of sex toys. Um, and now th there are mutual kind of ones that you can have 
coordinated. So, you know, you, you uh, there are ones for people with vulvas and there are ones for people with penises. Um, and they, you you know, whatever your co combination of, of individual people is, you might, um, you know, pair. So it can synchronize what's happening to yeah. you and what's happening to them. Yeah. And you can do this over the internet. So you may be on different continents, still able to have a, a kind of, you know, what used to be phone sex back in the 80s um, is now, you know, a, a far more sophisticated kind of sex play that can be done at any distance because so of what, the internet. What we're talking about here is, um, I guess, emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, you know, yes. the, the two sort of broad buckets, I guess, of what people get out of their significant <laughs> other, the sexual yes. satisfaction and then the connective satisfaction as well. Yes. What, how do you think this is related to uh, VR porn and, and VR sex and stuff as well? Have you got any idea of the level of addictiveness, uh, uh, compelling nature of VR porn compared with traditional porn? Um, it's a good question. I don't, I don't have, um, have, you know, strict data on that kind of thing. VR is always that, you know, it's always just over the horizon, it seems. And if you speak to people who've been watching this, they'll say VR has been promising to be all that for 30 years and it's never quite got there. Um, and, you know, part of that is the, is the processing power required to, you know, be able to process in all those directions, etc. cetera. Um, but it, it's obviously going to be quite, very good and it's becoming quite immersive in vr porn is becoming quite immersive now the combining of that with with teledildonics is going to we, we are told deliver this incredibly immersive experience um that will allow you to be basically dropped into a porn scene the the even more compelling part i think is likely to come when the vr can be adaptive so it can actually figure out where you are and what you want and generate the scene um and that um has spontaneity i suppose um and but you know will it ever turn up we don't know vr's made promises before hasn't really uh hasn't really always got there yeah it's one of those strange things but we say that about about vr but look at what happened with large language models right we had um 10 years ago, the, the concerns around super intelligence from guys like Nick Bostrom, what's it going to become? These, the, blah, blah, blah. And then I remember thinking toward the end of the 20 teens, all of these worries that we had a while ago just seem like they're, they're completely not manifested. And then in the space of the last 12 months, it's been all that we've seen. And I think that that inflection point for specifically software, maybe less so for hardware, Right, because this is going to be a lot of a lot of hardware stuff. But yeah, I I can see that this is going to be the sort of thing that may very well reach a, an unforeseeable inflection point beforehand. So all of this stuff that we've gone through, right, all of these different ways that people can become intimate, whether it be emotionally or physically, how worried do you think that we should be about this? I think we should. I think we should be really worried about it. I think the problem with it is, and large language models is a great example because you know I think that we th we thought it was processing power, and actually it was data, um, and it was the methods for dealing with the data. Um, and now that you know those large language models have shown us that you know exceptional learning t together with you know all of the data. Um, 
delivers these incredibly impressive results. And I think that we should be really worried about that aspect because when we are dealing with machines that are um, pushing our buttons, our revolve buttons that were there for us to deal with other individuals who had only their own experience and what little they could learn from the people around them. Um, so, you know, we, we could be outgunned by someone who is more experienced, but, you know, not, not profoundly, not by orders of magnitude, really. Um, but now we're dealing with the possibility of, and, and in fact, in many cases, the reality of uh, machines that have all of the data from uh, interactions, you know, all of the interactions um, that, you know, might happen on the internet or that might happen even on a particular platform. Um, and so we are, we individuals, users are hopelessly outmatched by that. Um, and that's a real concern because um, the potential for, you know, for folks to be very vulnerable and to be, um, to kind of lose their agency um, is, is profound. And what, what are the outcomes that you're uh, nervous about here? <clears throat> I'm most nervous about, um, about them kind of messing with our heads, basically, about a, a, an epidemic of psychological, um, you know, not, not so much illness, but, you know, um, vulnerability um, in, in which people are um, exploited, um, used, or just generally um, not nourished by, the, by their relationships with technologies, um, and, and in which people don't realize that that's what's happening. I'm not, so, I'm not as concerned about the, the VR girlfriend kind of situation in which you know that, you know, the Dave Cat of, of, the, of the next era, um, in which somebody knows that they are um, not in a real relationship and that this is different from the so-called real relationships, but it kind of pushes those buttons. I'm concerned, though, that when your shopping trolley at the grocery store is using what it knows about intimacy to manipulate you into buying crap you don't need or, um, or into making you feel like we feel when we've had a breakup because they know that that's going to sell ice cream and ice cream's the thing we want to move this week or something like that. Those kinds of um, sort of subterranean applications of artificial intimacy, I think, are potentially you know, the, the most concerning. Oh, or similarly, if, if there were a, um, at, at a state level, some kind of actor basically could depress the mood of an entire country um, potentially because, you know, in order to win an election or something like that via the, that kind of manipulation, I think that oh, would be problematic. I see. Right. Okay. So in the same way as how social media companies had a degree of insight around our motivations, what we're into, what we like and what we don't like, that opened up Cambridge Analytica to feed information back up. People could then create memes. Those memes then pushed the individual buttons that certain cohorts would find compelling to get them to vote in one direction or another. What you're saying is that in this new world with a much higher um, density amount of information, emotionally, spiritually, physically, sexually, etc. <clears throat> all of these things combined together is going to really, really ramp up the amount of manipulation that can be done. And then if you don't have the proper safeguards around the boundaries of this, mm. that if your supermarket is indeed speaking to your dildo, that it's going to be able to 
push your behavior in ways that we might not want it to. Yes, and that we might not anticipate. Um, and in fact, that will be probably protected as parts of a, a sort of a, a commercial, this would be commercial knowledge. And so we may never find that out, um, you know, to the to, to the full extent that, that we would want to. Um, mm. We may be manipulated in ways that we don't, um, we don't know we're being manipulated, you know. I'm concerned generally about the, about the fact that the enormous amount of data that companies have um, and the fact that all of the big discoveries in human behavior currently are being, you know, um, mined not by scientists uh, who have to go through ethics committees and do things ethically, et cetera, et cetera, but by, you know, companies with large amounts of data that are basically A-B testing the hell out of us. Um yeah, how, how well are machines able to replicate intimacy? Is there an upper bound that they can get past? What are the sort of psychological evolved mechanisms that are being pushed and pulled? All right, so so intimacy is basically just um, well, not just it's it's a profound and and you know beautiful adaptation, but it's the capacity, the psychological capacity to think of the the other person as part of ourselves. Um, so we we fold them into our sense of self, which is why when somebody who's very close to you, um, you know, turns out to not be who they they represented themselves as, turns out to have awful politics or do something criminal or something like that, we get we're devastated because it challenges not our sense of them but our sense of ourselves as well. When they die, it feels like part of us has died. You'll often hear that in people who are bereaved um, because. It, it it is actually true that you've lost a, a part of yourself um, that you've psychologically filed away. Um, so we build intimacy via a series of a series of steps um, that uh, the, the most well understood are um, called escalating self disclosure. So you know we chat a little bit about things we did on the weekend, or we chat a little bit about our kids, or you know we we. As the relationship progresses, we chat about things that are more important, more profound, and that we would chat about with fewer people. To the point then, uh, when um, our closest and most intimate individuals, we could chat about anything, including things that we might not be proud of, etc. Um, and that's how we build intimacy. Um, not just talking, of course, touching as well, but you know, whereas the apes, our, our ape ancestors had touch only, we have talk. Um, in fact, the reason that we're able to have such big friendship networks and so many intimates is that we're able to talk. It's a very efficient way of building connections and building intimacy. Um, turns out that that's exceptionally easy. It's an algorithmic process. And so it's exceptionally easy for computers to emulate. Maybe not perfectly, but you know what? In many cases, better than humans do, of course, because we're not all, you know, the poet laureate. We're not all, um, you know, great at remembering what somebody did last week or what they told us a month ago, etc. Machine doesn't have any problem like that, of course, because um, that's all in in files. That's all accessible to it. So, in many ways, um, machines are, are better than us at building certain types of intimacy. Now, from their point of view. Is it intimacy? No, it's not. What they're doing is they're basically running a simulation um, that is plugged into us that is dependent on our sense of intimacy.
Mm. Um, does this show does this show that human friendships are relatively algorithmic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know that won't be popular with with some listeners, but um, absolutely, we are. You know, the way in which we build friendships, the way in which we fall in love, is actually highly, highly algorithmic. You've got um, this. And- um, you've got this really great quote that says, "Friendship and love might seem magical, but they don't arrive by supernatural intervention. They are built through mundane, iterative interactions, paying mutual attention, being generous, and disclosing aspects of ourselves to one another." And then the equivalent for love, the subjective love feelings we think of as love form the middle part of the algorithm. Combinations of hormones lead to syndromes of sensation and subtle dose-dependent effects alter the quality of those sensations. Those sensations motivate individuals to take actions they would not otherwise take. Absolutely. You know, I mean, we it's a very strange thing that we do getting really close to somebody who's not related, who we didn't know when we were younger, who we in many cases only met that evening, getting naked with them and sort of, you know, exchanging bodily fluids. It's an odd, odd thing. In no other context do we do that kind of stuff. And so, uh, except for perhaps contact sport, I suppose, uh, but not always advertently. Um, and, And so we actually have to have an enormous bag of psychological tricks that make us not only think that that's a good idea, but choose to go out and do that sort of thing. Um, and that's basically right. intimacy. So what you're saying is that um, the mechanism of intimacy is so powerful <laughs> that it causes us to put ourselves into uh, real outlier situations, uh, high degrees of personal, emotional openness, um, physical exposure, exchanging fluids, um, you know, weakness and vulnerability or or, or sort of fragility of lying there without your armor and your sword or your family or whatever these things, falling asleep with the person, um, you know, giving them information that can be used as gossip, which can then be reputationally catastrophic. Um, Because of that, it is almost like a, a... a chink in our psychological defense armor. When you think about people that enter workplace meetings or negotiations for raises and stuff, and they've just, they're so, everything is switched on and and they're vigilant and they're looking out for whatever threat and potential way to manipulate the situation. And then this is a particular area of our psychology, which all of those defenses seem to fall down. Uh, And in fact, we go and do things. Therefore, the fact that this is, at least replicable to a certain degree artificially leaves us incredibly open and vulnerable. It's like a, um, a, a vulnerability in a piece of software, like a backdoor into yeah. a piece of software. Absolutely. And, you know, in most cases, that's, that's okay because we're both in that place. Once you establish that you're both in that place and you establish a certain amount of trust, then you can both go there. Um, of course, there are people who are very good at exploiting that trust and at, at uh, sort of assuring the other party that that, that they're trustworthy, um, and so they, uh, you know, they they are able to manipulate people in that regard. You know, it's, I'm talking sort of sociopathic kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but we, when when it's with the machine, of course, it's not it's not symmetrical because the machine, of course, doesn't have the same set of interests, can't have the same set of interests, and it's not vulnerable in the way that we're vulnerable it can make itself appear vulnerable it can reassure us that it's 
seems vulnerable, but it isn't vulnerable, not in that way. Um, and that's unfair. That's that's a huge mismatch. And also you have, as you said before, the power of using a very high number of iterations between not just you and it, but it and all however many hundred of thousand million other people it's interacted with, which makes it more effective at making you feel X or Y or Z. And then it can be purposefully malicious or uh, accidentally negligent, which can use this chink in the back door in your psychology to then really cause you damage. There's something else I was considering as well. You kind of touched on it with Dave Cat, although I didn't realize that he'd ship of Theseus his way through a bunch of different AI girlfriends and had to replace the the outer skin or whatever. Um, have you considered what this will do for our evolved mating psychology, given that especially men, but women too, could cycle through a lot of different partners it's like the coolidge effect on steroids mm. almost whether these be virtual whether they be virtual reality uh whether they be physical and you've got some monthly subscription where you go from asian to african-american to european to whatever whatever yeah i mean i think you know there's obviously a great deal of of noise about pornography has been for a very long time um you know in in the sense that that um of, you know, people are, are wasting their lives, they're wasting their motivation by basically having access to all of the sexual stimulation, em emulating via, via pornography, um, you know, being out there mating all the time and therefore not needing to be, you know, motivated in that kind of Freudian sense to go forth and build an empire so that you can get the girl at the end of it, etc. And so there's this big concern that young men are wasting away. Now, that, that's... <laughs> I'm really dubious about that because um, even about the, f the few scientific studies that, you know, um, show something like it, because, you know, if you go back 200, 300 years and look at all of the pamphlets against masturbation, it's exactly the same kind of argument. There's a very strong compulsion in some people to basically, you know, regulate what people are doing in their own bedrooms by themselves. Um, nonetheless, I think there is a certain sense that there's there's definitely what is definitely true about that is that um with all of the access to pornography over the last 25 odd years of the internet um people aren't going out and finding people as much um you know they aren't necessarily the the, the current generation of young people seems to be a lot less sexually active a lot less sexually adventurous than say generation x was um or even the generations after that um, so I, I guess as this stuff gets more and more compelling, it's going to take up, um, it, it, it's, it may firstly sap our motivation to go forth and do other things, um, and therefore to mate and have children, um, et cetera, which will have evolutionary consequences because, you know, genes, um, but, um, are you seeing this advent of artificial intimacy as being related to the risk of young male syndrome? Yes, um, I think artificial intimacy has things to say about young male syndrome in, in, in two different ways. One is, I think that it's, um, it's likely to, to basically tap off a lot of the male anger, a lot of the, the, the sort of um, incel kind, kind of related. So young male syndrome basically is, you know, angry young men, late teens through to 
maybe the end of their 20s, willing to take risks, discount the future, do dangerous stuff um, in order to rise in status and respect against relative to their peers. Um, and so that might be involved, you know, going out on a Friday night um, and when somebody looks at you a little bit strange, taking a front um, and it ends up, you know, in, in some kind of physical violence and a tiny, tiny, tiny little number of those ends up in someone, you know, being punched, falling on the floor, you know, and dying as a consequence of their injury, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, we see this pattern with, uh, with, with fighting, we see it with violence, with property crime, with homicide, with traumatic brain injury, that it really spikes in the twenties for young men. And that's because, um, you know, a lot of young men have no prospects at all. They have, have historically, throughout history, had very few prospects of ever finding a mate and taking their place in society that um, that you would come with having a mate and possibly having kids and all of that kind of stuff. Now, your ancestors and my ancestors, however, did not have that problem. Because hey, they winning yeah. team. We were the winning team. Congratulations. Come on. And, and all of your listeners, you're all winners because – um, you've managed to transcend that again and again and again. Uh, yeah, 40% of men and only 80% of women throughout history, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so twice as many female ancestors as male ancestors, but every single one of your male ancestors managed to transcend that at least once, have sex at least once and raise a kid who managed to do the same thing. Okay, you, said um, that, um, you said artificial intimacy has got two things to say about young male syndrome. Yeah. Okay. So, so one is um, it's potential to actually tap some of that energy, some of that, which can be creative energy, but can also be incredibly destructive energy is huge. It's like pornography on steroids, as you said earlier, um, in, in that it can, it can um, basically deflect a lot of that, uh, which can pro probably be a good thing, probably deliver a net benefit. Um, on the other hand, um, it can, um, it, you know, if, if artificial intimacy gets really good at, at pairing people up, we haven't talked much about the algorithmic matchmakers, but the matchmakers like currently Tinder and Grindr, et cetera, are matching people up. If they are giving us what we want, which is somebody who is way above us and, and way more attractive than us, um, et cetera, you know, which is what, what people want, they want to win in that regard. Um, and if it's delivering that, especially for women, then it may well be worsening the young male syndrome by narrowing things. Uh, you know, if you have to go to parties and you have to go out on dates in order to find people, in order to start conversations, etc., we're all constrained, but we all have 24 hours in the day. And so the, the, the opportunities to, to possibly date and mate are spread more evenly. If we're doing it instantaneously on an app by a quick left or right swipe and we're really looking at who's super attractive or who presents themselves really well, we can get this incredible narrowing down to a few super attractive individuals who are going to be having, you know, a rampant time on the apps um, and a lot of people who are getting nothing at all. Mm. And that could worsen young male syndrome. Yeah. What did you look at to do with the algorithmic matchmaking stuff? Have you seen it as a heaven or a hell? I've seen it as currently currently descending into a potential hell um, <laughs> on account of the fact that, you know, the folks have figured out what they can do. And, you you know, they want to keep people on platforms, so they want to keep presenting people with the possibility of meet, meeting somebody who's super attractive. Um, whereas 
if for them for it to work in a in a in a more um, benign kind of way, in which uh, people match up to other people who um, you know where the relationship really works. It, there's a lot more learning involved. You know, those those dating platforms that say that they match you to somebody who's compatible who or who's like what you want, or this is the app we want you to delete because you're going to find your, you know, the one, et cetera. They don't know anything at the moment. They really don't, as far as I can tell, have any special insights into it. That currently what, we, what we're looking at is um, platforms that are able to present a, a catalog of things that look good, Mm. Um, and and then instead of the app doing the work, you're basically doing the work of swiping and messaging and finding, you know, then going on dates. Um, I don't. I, I, I like I said right at the at the beginning of the show, people. I, I'm reluctant to ever say machines can't do that or won't do that because that they always prove us wrong. At the moment, machines aren't figuring out the best ways of pairing people for what it is they want. And part of that's because people themselves don't necessarily know what they want. But as soon as Correct. the apps can learn indirectly from us what it is that we want and deliver to us what we want, then I that's they, a, I, likely I, to be a really good thing. Yeah, I think that they already are in some regard. The problem is what we click on and who we click with don't align very yes. much. The things that people optimize for for swiping right and the things that are predictive of a long-term successful relationship often have basically zero correlation. Like, yeah, they need to get you across the line. Like, you need to have an initial attraction to somebody, the same as in a bar, right? If, yeah. if there's someone, they need to really, really overcompensate with humor or charm or the way that they move or whatever it might be if you're not physically attracted to them, which is why physical attraction, you know, the black pill gets some of this stuff right, that looks are very, very important, and they can often be a doorway that is either open or closed. Mm. But... <clears throat> On the apps, what you are optimizing for is uh, education level, implied socioeconomic status, and attraction, and age, um, and height, I guess. And within that, it means that none of, pretty much none of those things have any predictive power when it comes to long-term relationship satisfaction. But the only information that the apps get about you are your response to those criteria because they're not mm. going away and observing your interactions with this person over the next three month, act, perhaps blissful beginning of your lifetime partnership or total catastrophe that ends up in you hating each other and deleting each other from all social media. They don't actually see the stuff that people are optimizing for on the back end. They just see what they're, what they're swiping left or right for yeah. on the front end. And yeah, that, that leads to both the apps and the users gaming the system. So the yes. users, the, the, the women will try and overemphasize their looks. The men will try and overemphasize their socioeconomic status and their height. You know, it, it just creates a, a game of selection criteria that then the users reverse engineer to try and work out what works. Then it's a battle between human psychology and an algorithm. Again, just back and forth, back and forth. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a classic sexual conflict. Again, it's an arms race. Um, and But instead of the arms race being between women and men it's an arms race between women and the app men and the app um and to some extent you know be between women and men indirectly um uh, as a consequence of that and um you know and i don't blame the people who make the apps what they're doing is they're creating something a marketplace for busy people who live in busy places um in these in enormous cities in most cases you know humans did not evolve to to live in 
cities of millions of people um you know we still have communities of 150 to 200 people that we interact with um and our social circles spread outwards from there um and and you know current urban living just doesn't um doesn't deliver on that kind of thing and so you know the 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 apps are tremendously successful in one way in uh, all the ways that you just described um but there is a real a real space in the market for people to um to find what they um what they really want uh but they have to know what they really want first and that's you know most of us don't rob have you got a dog that's snoring next to you i do can you hear him yeah give him a nudge for me he's cute i like him but give him let's wake him up a little bit he's everyone can hear him snoring millions of people are listening to your poor doggo snoring now Bexy, what's up, buddy? He's um <laughs> sorry, he's very insecure. I've just been away for four days and he just came in and sat next to me. That's all right. But he's I've got right. my He's I've more important. He's he's the most on. important person in this conversation, so I'm glad that he's okay. Well heard. Are you gonna keep snoring? Do you wanna go outside? Okay. I'll put my foot on his little <laughs> cushion here <laughs> and we'll see how we can go you've got some attention that's cool so why do you think it is that we haven't got more incel violence going back to that young male syndrome uh, question that we spoke about before because given the rates of loneliness and sexlessness that we have at the moment especially young young men especially in the cohort of men that would do the risk-taking behavior to try and get that status up it seems to me that there does seem to be pretty good evidence that men are being sedated out of this, you know, reproductive and status-seeking behavior through a, a little titrated dose of community through por- uh, through uh, video games and social media and, and probably reproductive cues through porn. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's, you know, you, there's 24 hours in a day. And if you spend time doing the, the things that compel you and that emulate the you know, violent warmongering competition for status and respect, as well as as well as give you the sense that you, at, at some level, um, you know, attractive or at least you're stimulated in a way that's like having sex with an attractive person. Um, that that's enough to neutralize that for a lot of people. They may not be happy. They may not be better off for it um, individually, but it certainly completely neutralizes that. And I think that that's that's um, a massive benefit that uh, is, you know, hard to sell to some people, to the to the Puritans. Um, but I think that it's it's something that that uh, really has has worked. Um, compare that with, you know, there are parts of the world in which um, access to that that kind of technology and to those kinds of um, things are, you know, not not really possible. Um, and in which access to mating markets that are only get to go through traditional ways, um, and in in those parts of the world, you still have a, um, a, a tremendous amount of radicalization of young men, of uh, polarization of young men against um, older men, against families, etc. Um, and you see an enormous amount of incel violence. It might not be popular to say that you know that. The odd North American incel who goes out on a rampage um, is, in a way, the, the the aberrant kind of tip of an iceberg that is actually historically been an, a much bigger iceberg mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and his, and is still in a lot of parts of the world. 
but you know, uh, it's it's true that you know where, where mating markets are freeze young men out either because they have to pay bride price and many men can't afford it or because there's a massively male-biased sex ratio, um, those are places where young men radicalize and fall into violence, property crime, uh, gangsterism, drug addiction, mental health problems um, in, in other parts of the world. What are, what are your favorite examples of young male syndrome throughout history or across the world? And then how were they dealt with? Are there any uh, examples of this that you think are sort of particularly interesting or illuminative? Well, I think um, uh, part of the, the history of European colonialism is uh, one of sort of second and third and fourth sons who had no was this, prospect. Was this Portugal? Portugal, yeah, Spain? Portugal in particular. Yes, yes. You know, to to um, very very few prospects to basically um, inherit land. Um, and so they had to go forth and into the military or into some kind of colonial expedition. And, you know, large numbers of them died. They were, in many respects to their families, expendable um, as long as the heir lived long enough um, to inherit and to have kids of his own. Um, and so they would have to go forth and make, make something of themselves or die trying. That's a you know, classic get rich or die trying scenario. Um, other favourite examples uh, in in sort of imperial China, um, entire dynasties came to an end um, occasionally when uh, a sex ratio bias is a consequence of the neglect um, of young young girls and often infanticide of young girls resulted in very biased sex ratios. Um, and when that sort of got built up and built up and sort of got a, out of hand, you would find that the young men would... Um, the, those that were frozen out of the mating market would form militias and gangs and armies eventually, um, and sometimes those armies overthrew the entire regime. Um, and the other side of it is that, um, you know, in, in most of history, and by history I really mean recorded history, you know, um, over the last 12,000 years or so, um, you know, people were, were at war so often um, every every generation or two, there would be some kind of a, a big war, and that war would basically um, eliminate so many young men that um, those that survived had, you know, a campaign behind them. They had that status, they had that respect, um, and they were able to to have families of their own. But it um, it by biasing the sex ratio to, towards a female biased sex ratio, young male syndrome was neutralized. Oh. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, war is good because it, it neutralizes <laughs> young male incel yeah. anger, but uh, the net effect is that um, incel anger within the society never got bad enough to, to destabilize the society. Do you think that that is a contributor then that we haven't had a large-scale conflict for quite a while, you know, approaching 100 years now, um, whether you want to look at it demographically in that a large chunk of men just haven't been removed due to casualties of war, uh, whether it's more sort of socioeconomically that the men that did go away and came back, that they had um, more status, that they were seen as, as heroic, which raised their mate value, which made it easier for them to partner up, or whether it was, uh, I guess, a venting outlet for their disgruntled young high testosterone male rage to be taken out on a bunch of other people and they can come back and kind of almost <clears throat> live the Thanos after he kills half of the universe life of, of, of feeling, you know, at, at peace and, and serene. 
uh, with PTSD perhaps, but you know, relatively serene. Um, is there is there something happening there? Do you think the fact that we haven't had a large scale conflict in that way? I think it's I think it's surprising, um, and not uh, not the the lack of the conflict, of course, um, you know, but it's one of those good news stories that's hard to spin because um you know war is generally bad anyway and delivers so many negative externalities um but the um yeah i i completely agree with you that it's um it's amazing that young male syndrome uh, that sort of incel anger and violence isn't much, much, much greater. And I yeah. think that a huge amount of that is is that, you know, this culture that is very sex-oriented and very much about delivering, you know, experiences, whether that's in cinema or, or computer games or social media, that basically push our buttons that make us feel like we've arrived, that make us feel like we're living that life that people might have aspired to live two generations ago um, has in fact neutralized a lot of that young male anger um, in, in surprising ways. And that's, you know, when you want to complain about popular culture, you've got to take into account the fact that it's probably done, you know, even, even though some of it's a bit heinous and, and, and um, you know, a, a bit concerning for other reasons, it's probably neutralized all sorts of violence and antisocial behavior. And that's pretty good. Yeah, it's such a, a fascinating area. William Costello from uh, UT is yeah. writing it, writing a paper on precisely this. I actually got quoted in my first ever academic paper nice. uh, for, for having coined the term that he's using for this, which is the male sedation hypothesis. Nice. Uh, so yeah, I've got a my first ever quotation, which is which is pretty cool. And um, yeah, well, it's just it's really interesting to think. Okay, everybody has a problem. Everybody rails against modern culture. It's transactional. It's treating people like objects. It's atomizing society. Everyone's an individual. There's this massive amount of solipsism. This sort of belief that the self is all that matters. We have all of this stuff combined together, and yet it can be true that that might be suboptimal and not might be uh, might be what we don't want but also that it's probably stopped some of the imbalances in the mating market with regards to male and female mate value from spilling out into causing like real real social upheaval like genuine mm. you know daily mass murders that occur in multiple locations across the planet i mean dude the fact that korea is a country that is able to just operate in any way at all. Birth rate of like 0.8. You've got these women in the street. Have you heard of the four Bs uh, movement? It's, no. it's like four words in, in Korean, buy something, buy something, buy something, and buy something else. And it's like no men, no work, no patriarchy, and no... <clears throat> what, it's like radical feminism that includes a rejection of men overall, either as friends or as, as sexual partners. <clears throat> and it's 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 the most forthcoming presentation of a society where the women just do not care about the men and 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 largely although the men may want to be cared about by the women they've um retreated from that life in any case but again with all of this is it is it japan those uh, vegetable men or herbivore men or whatever they're yes. called hikikomori yeah. hikikomori yeah yeah they live in these huge apartment blocks they basically never leave they do some uh grunt work for amazon mechanical turk or or live on government benefits and they just don't leave and they're there yeah. it's like it's like halls of residence for for uh, forgotten and, and lonely men 
And yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds fucking dystopian, but it is. It is that's because it yeah. is. And all of this together, you would think, why are these men not rising up? If this had been 200 years ago, why are these men not rising up? Why are they not trying to take down the feudal lord that's caused this to happen? Why are they not taking women by force? You know, why why is that not occurring more? And it's because there's things to distract them, that they can be sedated by the right amount of Netflix and video games and porn and social media. Yeah, absolutely. It's... Um you know, vaguely terrifying, but you really have to look at what's the counterfactual. And, you know, in, in this case, um, it, it's too horrible to contemplate. So you also looked at why bigger gender pay gaps make mating markets better and easier for both sexes. Yes. Yeah. So you, you spoke earlier when we were talking about the, the matchmaking algorithms about, um, you know, people wanting women wanting to partner with men who are taller than them um or or tall or whatever it is um and who have such some socioeconomic status and you know um people get very upset when you say that but it's it's quite obvious and quite transparent um in many cases um and and similarly you know men wanting to to partner with women who have certain attributes as well. Now, it doesn't need to be a sophisticated preference. It could be as simple as, you know, I will only look at people who are as tall as I am and who are as wealthy as I am um, for it to actually have a massive net effect. You know, even if there are people who are willing to, to, to go the other way around, you still see this super concentration of opportunities amongst those who are both tall and have uh, have great um earning potential now um when that happens um if there's a gender gap in in earnings or income or wealth or whatever measure you want to use when there's a gender gap it means that there are more men it it runs deeper into the socioeconomic kind of scale of men who present some kind of an opportunity let's say, you know, a gender gap of, of uh, one standard deviation um, is likely to, to result in, instead of 50% of men earning more than the average woman, now 70% of men earn more than the average women. Um, and so when, when you look at that, um, you see that those places where there's a squeeze in the mating market, the, the, where, where um, some people are left out, like the incels, that gets much smaller. So with the gender pay gap of, um, you know, where men out earn women on average, you see there are fewer men at risk of becoming incels, at risk of being frozen out of the mating market. Um, there are also fewer women at the other end of the scale. It's in, in this case, it's the women with, um, who earn a lot of money or who have a lot of money who don't necessarily have, uh, aren't, aren't really able to deliver on their own preferences. Um, and so, you know, at that end, the, the families of rich daughters, uh, sorry, the, the families with rich daughters are often families that where, where the daughters don't end up partnering throughout history. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the, the, a, a gap in, in, in incomes has that effect. Interestingly, income inequality, that is differences within a sex have a similar kind of effect. Um, but in this case, it's high inequality de delivers more incels. 
Um, and so we did some work where we um, scraped like all of the Twitter for 14 years. It's colleague Candice Blake of, um, has this amazing resource where she's got all these tweets um, that she's, she's, you know, downloaded over a period of time before Uncle Elon decided that we could only read a small amount of his proprietary, uh, you know, data. Um, and um, we, we geolocated them. She did you know, created this really cool algorithm that basically was able to geolocate tweets so you didn't have to rely just on the people who said where they were from in their bio, but you could infer in other ways where they were from. Um, and we then looked at ones associated with the kinds of terms incels would use, their little in-group language, um, and we showed that uh, the places in the world where the incels are um, most active are in fact places that have narrow gender pay gaps, so we're going moving towards gender equity um, and high income inequality and um, sex ratios that are slightly biased towards more men. Um, so all the things that you would expect mating markets to deliver a squeeze on, you know, more angry young men down at the bottom of the socioeconomic status ladder who are going to be upset about that, all of those things delivered more incels within the United States. Uh, which was pretty cool. Why the high income inequality? What, what what role does that play? High income inequality creates a situation in which there are fewer men who are attractive. They're super attractive because they're right up at the top of the, the, the income scale making enormous amounts of money. Um, and um, in the case of the way that we modeled this mathematically, it's really just, you know, no women wanted to pair with the, with the men down the bottom end, but the tale of um, of men who don't earn enough to be worth the bother of partnering with um, that tale, because it's a, it's a very flat distribution, um, is, is bigger, and so a right. higher proportion of men are just not earning enough because those men that are earning the most money are taking most of the money. Understood. Kind of yeah. yeah, and then uh, Candice also found that in areas with high income inequality, women self objectify more. Right, they post yes. more sexy selfies. Yes, yeah. So that was that was the first paper um, in that series where she basically pulled out Twitter and Instagram stuff. Um, and so the idea here is that um, there may be two ways in which women benefit from sexy selfies. You know, the, the current narrative about this in academic circles is that self objectification is catering to the male gaze. It's it's females being disempowered by you know the patriarchy, etc. Um, and so what we wanted to say was, well, let's have a look at this. Is it places where women don't have, you know, education, access to jobs, access to income, et cetera? Are those are the places where you find um, lots of sexy selfies? And they aren't. That's not consistent at all. But what is the case is that high income inequality um, is a you know, places where there is high income inequality are places in which women are likely to self-objectify through sexy selfies. They're also likely to spend more, looking at economic data, on grooming, hair products, clothing, et cetera, et cetera. The argument is that either um, either it's um, be women basically looking to partner up and so they're advertising what they can offer on the mating market in terms of their looks and they're trying to you know partner up to get one of those extremely wealthy young men or potential partners in the high income inequality situation in order to because you can climb more in social mobility um or 
they themselves are looking for other types of economic opportunities. You know, being attractive is likely to give you more influencer roles, better jobs, um, etc. Um, and it could be both of those, of course. Yeah, fascinating. Again, another thing that's hard to hold, you know, two conflicting thoughts in your mind at one time, which is that allowing women to have access socioeconomically in terms of education to be able to liberate themselves from being reliant on a male partner is a good thing. It means that they mm. don't need to get into suboptimal relationships. <clears throat> it means that, you know, that they're not beholden okay. to staying in a relationship which could be abusive or could be terrible or whatever, because without it, they are nothing. They're out on the street, potentially with a child. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side, it makes their dating prospects worse. It makes yes. their dating prospects more difficult and this is again you're just tripping through all the different memes i've come up with over the last year this is what i've called the tall girl problem so it's so hilarious that you started this with the height example that yes. as a woman rises up through her own socioeconomic hierarchy she reduces down the number of men that are above and across from her which limits her own dating potential this is again fantastic for their independence and, and employment and you know everything it's really really brilliant but it is a fact that it makes dating more difficult it yeah. absolutely makes dating more difficult until women are able to overcome their hypergamous nature and from that you know there's a conversation it's so common on the internet the um the the double standard that happens on the internet of people saying well look women they have no idea what their standards should be all of these girls are three out of tens they think that they want an eight out of ten man and i'm like look you're using a, a failure of cross-sex mind reading here. You're looking at a woman from the outside for the most part. This is, again, there are both men and women that are massively, massively delusional about what their mate value is. Don't get me wrong. And that may be mm -hmm. even the majority, right? That may be a useful form of self-deception that we all have. But the bottom line is that a lot of the time when men look at women who say, uh, give criteria about the kind of man that they want, what they're looking at, it's a failure of cross-sex mind reading. They're saying, look, I'm uh, judging you, woman, based on how you present physically, perhaps based on your age, perhaps based on whether or not you're coming into this with a child. What the woman is saying is, I am basing this judgment of the man around his socioeconomic status, maybe a lot of the time because she's got two degrees, maybe a bachelor's and a master's, and she earns six figures a year. Maybe she earns you know, a, a very, very high net worth. Maybe she's already got a house. Maybe she doesn't care that she's already got a kid. And the failure, <clears throat> comes from the fact that the men think, well, what I want from you is youth, fertility, and attractiveness. What you want from me is socioeconomic status. What you're offering to me is socioeconomic status. And what I'm not offering to you is not the money that you're after. So mm. um, yeah, it, it's a really interesting uh, a discussion that goes on here between the two. And I think it's largely down to a lack of uh, education about the other sexes mating psychology. Yeah, absolutely. I think an understanding of the of the mating psychology is potentially really helpful to a lot of people to figuring out why it is that they're frozen out. You know, the number of the number of people I've met over time who are, you know, tall women, wealthy, highly educated women who have had to choose to have children on their own, you know, completely solo is enormous. Um, and that's not the case for, you know, people who are shorter or, or not don't earn as much, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so you, you can't necessarily, you know, reconcile all of those things. Or, no, you can, but, you know, you're, the odds are stacked against you. Um, and I think that if people understood this a little bit more, they'd understand why they are where they are 
but that doesn't change the psychology of it, of course, because, you know, partners are, are wonderful, but they're also a lot of work. They're also a lot of bother. What we see in, in a lot of the data um, is that as a couple, you know, starts out with the man earning more or during, during um, you know, childbearing times, the man's earning more, et cetera. Um, and then as, as she, where she starts to, to um, her, her income starts to go up faster than his to the point where it matches, you get this, um, this cliff that the couples fall off. As soon as she starts earning more than him, they fall off this divorce cliff, basically, in which um, it is no longer, you know, the relationship just is less likely to persist. And those couples that do persist tend to persist because she decides to work part-time or she basically starts to play wife a whole lot more, which is to compensate by doing, even though she's earning more than him, by doing more around the house and more gendered domestic things um, in a wow. way. So you're saying that you're saying that sort of typically female housework is a prophylactic against overachieving socioeconomic women in divorce from their marriage. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a prophylactic against like hurt male feels basically um, as, wow. as oh, the so power dynamic shifts where she's earning more than him. He doesn't have that, that um, sort of whether it's pride or whatever it is. Um, and, he, you know, he may not be doing this, you know, within his awareness, but he gets a bit fragile. Um, and as a result, How much, so this is, this is a really, really common question that happens, uh, gets brought up. How much of this issue with the woman out earning the man as whether it be breadwinner, whether it be education or whatever, especially when you get um, changes in mate value with regards to socioeconomic status within a relationship that's already existing, how much of this do you think comes female to male and how much do you think of this comes male to female? How much of it is the woman, um, like her hypergamy switch being turned off and how much of this do you think is the man's uh, like uh, in inadequacy switch being turned on um yeah i don't know i mean the, the, i'd love the to obvious, work that out i'd love yeah. to pull that apart somehow it would um i we definitely know that um it's there, there's a big female side part of that decision in that um divorces in those kinds of couples in sort of wealthy to both working couples in places like the United States or Australia, et cetera, divorces tend to be more often initiated by women. And, and it's the, the kind of narrative that I've seen around this kind of research has been, you know, there's this baseline level of maintenance that, you know, men are somewhat high maintenance for women. They are, um, they work. Um, and so their work needs to be compensated by some kind of advantage. And when that advantage withers, um, it becomes something that, that um, you know, the women decide is not worth the bother anymore. I'm not achieving social mobility through being with you. Um, there's not, you know, this deal isn't really working out for me anymore. Um, that said, I don't know that the other side of it has been examined to a sufficient degree. Common sense would suggest that it's both to both directions because it is a mutual negotiation. Yeah. It also, I, I agree and I understand women account for whatever it is. 70% of divorces it is massively skewed in their favor for who makes the decision. But you don't know why they did that. That's you true. Know, if the man is behaving in a manner that 
pushes the woman to and beyond her limit, then of course. So, yeah. Although it's a very sort of common held trope that, well, you know, women do this many percent of divorces. That's not necessarily because she's the one that caused the issue. Don't get me wrong. Tons and tons of women are bitches in relationships and marriages. I, I get it, right? But it could be a response to the man. Like there's also a stat, um, the average time that it takes for someone in a relationship to say that I love you is three months if they're going to do it. And it is the man, the overwhelming majority of the time. It is so proportionally, the, the majority of the time it is the male that, really? says, that says I love you first. Yeah, almost always, almost always. It's huge. It's like, it's like maybe four in five or three wow. in five or something like that. It's a huge number of them. Um, so there's a lot of things that you that maybe don't necessarily make sense at first, and then you actually dig into the data and you realize, hmm, there's something going on here. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's very interesting, I think. Um, you know, I think that, that some of the, the more, you know, we, we talked about some of the less wholesome things that people do, like, you know, the kind of love bombing associated with, um, you know, which is a precursor to coercive and controlling behavior in relationships and those kinds of, you know, trying to sweep people off their feet, et cetera, is a very male-based strategy. And I think it probably taps into female mating psychology, um, and that's why it tends to be so effective. Oh, they're over-optimizing for that emotional connection on the front end because they know that that's the sort of thing that would get them sexual access on the back end. Yeah. Very good. There's two two studies of yours that I saw from quite a while ago, one to do with the indirect benefits of mating with attractive males outweighing the direct costs. Can you remember that one? Yes. Um, I think that was in uh, house cricket. So um, so indirect benefits are um, basically genetic benefits. Um, so it's it sounds very interesting if you're imagining it being a, a human um, situation, but um, you know, in, in the, the pop evolutionary psych literature, you would have, you know, come across this idea that, you know, what women are doing when they're looking for a, a man is gene shopping. Um, and for about 30, 40 years, the um, people who work on animal behavior have been arguing about this idea of can an individual benefit genetic, sort of in an, in an evolutionary sense by um, mating with a superior genetic specimen? Seems kind of obvious, but... Um, the, the the benefit in terms of having um, of, of mating with an, a good genetic um, specimen is that your offspring are going to inherit half of that good genetic specimen's genes, including some of the good genes, and then when they you know go through life, then they'll they'll um, flourish more and are more likely to be attractive, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, actually, a very difficult thing to prove with any you know level of of um, certainty. Uh, what we do know is that there's often direct benefits. That is, uh, you know, if uh, the male delivers food or protection or help or whatever, that can raise the number of offspring that the female has. Um, and in this case, direct costs, I think, was that attractive male crickets actually kind of um, are a little bit nastier to mate with. And so they actually suppress the number of offspring that the female has um, but they're genetically superior, and so this the was one of the is sufficiently yeah. high. Yeah, very. One of the first situations that did this. I'm very dubious when I see the the emphasis that's placed on genetic benefits in mate choice in humans. Not to say that there aren't any; there obviously are, but um, but those are are often the dramatic kind of 
genetic benefits of mating with somebody who's, um, you know, uh, a fully functioning human being pretty much um, who doesn't have, you know, isn't profoundly inbred, um, which has historically been a really important thing, um, doesn't have a, a very weak immune system, et cetera. So, you know, we're cued into that kind of stuff. But, you know, um, you know, most people in healthy, easygoing kind of societies um, today don't have that much genetic benefit to deliver that would um, that would drive that weird process by which preferences evolve. So going back to the AI stuff, you wrote your book a little while ago, like yeah. two years ago, but that's a lifetime ago in the world yes. of AI. What didn't you predict? And given your perspective on this, what do you think we should expect over the next five to 10 years from this world? I think um, what I didn't predict, I didn't, I, what I didn't emphasize as much as I probably would have liked to have done was that um, the capacity to, for chat to be so good, um, the capacity for conversation to be so good. I think, you know, the, the, um, I think that was by far the most interesting part of the book for me to write was the stuff about forming intimacy, about forming relationships, etc. Um, you know, but obviously the titillating thing everybody wants to know about the sex robots and the teledildonics, etc. And that is absolutely fascinating. But it's quite clear now with the big explosion in large language models um, and in you know the ch chatbots that are based on that, um, it's it's incredible to see the progress that some of the new kind of um, romance AI chatbots um, are able to deliver. And I would double down on my concerns about them messing with our heads or just taking up our time and displacing other activities, social activities that we should be doing. Mm. And what about the future? What do you think's coming up over the next five to 10 years? What I would like to see is um, some... AI development going into um, sort of defense, I guess. So, so like, an, you know, the antiviruses, when, when computer viruses first came out, we were all vulnerable to them. And then various people started developing antivirus software. Now that runs in the background and basically just tells us the very, very rare occasion where we are threatened by something, um, you know, it, it helps us, helps to defend us against this. I would like to see, I don't think that we can rely on our own vigilance um, to realize when we're being scammed by, like you said, the, um, you know, our, our supermarket tr uh, virtual trolley controlling our dildo, et cetera. But, um, I, yeah, I, I would, I would like to see some defense side technologies that could be deployed for users, um, to basically defend us against not just bad actors, but manipulation. Um, because I think that the capacity for manipulation is so great. Um, and the way it gets under our skin, it, we're so vulnerable to. Um, so that would, would definitely be something I think would be huge in the future. Yeah, I, I, I've thought about this a lot, you know, this sort of current sex negative trend. It's not even sex negative. It's like human sex negative or intimacy negative trend that we're seeing at the moment is sex recession or the mating crisis. And as with many things, including fast food, what is good for you and what is enjoyable don't always align. And you can often do the thing which is enjoyable and easy and convenient in place of something that's good for you. And that can continue to take hold. And we love the idea of, 
you know, channeling our in and Ryan Holiday and becoming the Marcus Aurelius is sort of stoic, virtuous man. And I'm going <clears> to <throat> recant this new world of fake connection and fake love and fake trolley dildos. And I'm going to make it out on my own and touch grass and do all this stuff. But, you know, all of us every single day are tempted by these very convenient, very pleasurable, very enjoyable experiences. You know, we take our phones to the bathroom. We watch, mm. YouTube, we watch YouTube while we eat lunch as opposed to talking to someone next to us or just allowing our mind to have its thoughts because boredom and discomfort has been reduced right. down. It's been eroded away so much that it, it's very easy for us to do this. So at the moment, I'm, I'm not massively hopeful, I don't think, for people pulling themselves away from it. And there are some positives to this, you know, combating loneliness, um, reducing down the risk of young male syndrome, perhaps even offering companionship to women that are socioeconomically very successful and maybe struggling uh, to find that partner that they genuinely do desire, which is, you know, just something that it doesn't seem is going to slow down anytime soon. Um, but I, I, I just, I wonder whether that's what's best for people. I wonder whether artificial intimacy is better than no intimacy at all and whether the net benefit or the net negative of this actually ends up which side of the scale it ends up falling out on like is it is the sedation uh is the the fact that you're no longer motivated to go out and do do something meet people in the real world yourself is the titrated dose of real world connection worth that and then you know <clears throat> downstream let's say that it is or it isn't it doesn't really matter if that's what people are going to do you are 100% going to face some genuine externalities like population collapse. And and that's just regardless of whether it's better for people or worse until you've got IVG and wombs, uh, artificial wombs, you're, you're fucked on that front. So real, real inflection point of change, I think at the moment. Enormous, you know, absolutely enormous and proliferating in ways that, that we don't anticipate either. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's really important to not get too doom and gloom about it because, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the Cherry Turkle says, you know, robots may be better than nothing, but they're not enough. And I would say in response to that, um, they're better than nothing. And that's all that some people have, you know, because there is so much loneliness out there. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the replica AI um, romance bot that, um, you know, recently they, they sort of shut off their erotic role play because they had a, a licensing issue, et cetera. And, you know, people were bereft. They really, this for them, this was a very real relationship. They know it's not a real relationship, but but it feels real and it pushes real buttons for them. And that's the only way that those buttons get pushed. And I think that, you know, the potential for this stuff to make us feel more human is enormous. Um, and And so, you know, all of that good shouldn't be thrown out with, with all of the bad that's out there. Um, and, you know, we, we're, we, we'll have to navigate it very carefully and very delicately. Um, and hopefully with, uh, with, with an openness that isn't simply ideological knee jerk reactions. It's hard, man. It's hard. You mm. hear about these stories, you hear about these things happening and you just default to right, Luddite it, switch it off, pull, yep. pull the plug. We're not going to have this. Or there's a massive amount of um, like conceptual inertia or, or, or a naturalistic um, fallacy that this there's an ick 
around, you know, you hear about Dave Cat and you think, oh, this guy's doing what with this robot? And it's, you know, you think that's, but then, you know, on the flip side, there's all manner of relationships that people used to think were reprehensible and sometimes illegal and sometimes resulted in castration that have been perfectly accepted. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a really, really tough one, man. When we've got cuddle cafes, you know, and men that pay women not to have sex with them, but just to sit and be with them or vice versa, women, you know, increasing uh, amounts of polygyny because you've got a a scarcity of, of men that perhaps some women are, are looking for. You've got increases in domestic violence and, um, like a benefit inflicting mating behavior from men because women who didn't date hypergamously are threatening their, that they know that they don't need them. They're concerned that they're going to leave them. You know, when you change, when you start to change the dynamics that the mating market has sort of vestigially had for a long time, you end up with some really strange externalities. And I think that we're just permanently eating all of those and then technology speeding them up. Uh, and you know, the, the other thing, the, the most common element that everybody is familiar with when it comes to mating is the matchmaking stuff and the matchmaking stuff doesn't seem to have got particularly much better either. You know, in some, in some ways it's facilitated an awful lot of relationships. I think between f- sort of 50 and 60% of relationships now begin online in one form or another. And, um, even that, like they're the most fragile relationships. They're also the ones that on route to getting them can probably cause a lot of uh, externalities that people aren't happy with ghosting, uh, being swindled, sort of, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be an interesting few years. Look, Rob, let's bring this one home, mate. I really appreciate you. I think your work is fantastic. Uh, where Thank should you, people Chris. go if they want to check out more of the stuff that you do and keep up to date with your work? Keep up with my um, with my writing at Rob Brooks, so R-O-B-B-R-O-O-K-S dot net. Um, and on Twitter, it's Brooks underscore Rob. Um, and you should be able to to get most of what I say. Perfect. Rob, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris.